I apologize for my voice. I'm not Theresa May, as you will discover in this, and there won't be letters falling down. We are talking about summits, and when there's a summit, you definitely have to be there, whatever your voice. So I will be Angela Merkel today. Um, we need to talk about Putin. For the tabloids, Vladimir Putin is a great source of entertainment. All those shots of him stripped to the waist. <laughs> or the glossy images of his palatial homes. It is nearly as priceless as the tweeting and posturing of Donald Trump. I think we'd leave that for a moment. People need to take that one in. So. <laughs> and then we move to Florida, of course. But Putin is a much more serious figure. That's why we need to talk about him. For a start, he's the millennium man, in power since the year 2000. And if he wins re-election for another six-year term in 2018, he will have led Russia for nearly a quarter of a century much longer than any of his Western counterparts, longer even than Angela Merkel here, who will probably manage 16 years from 2005 to 2021. More important than mere political longevity is what Putin has done with all his power. He set out his aims in a 5,000-word manifesto published just as he took office the presidency of Russia on the 1st of January 2000. It was entitled Russia on the Threshold of the New Millennium and it set out his vision of ideology, politics and power. On ideology, he stated bluntly that the Bolshevik experiment had totally failed. Communism and the power of the Soviets, he wrote, did not make Russia into a prosperous country. It was a road to a blind alley which is far away from the mainstream of civilization. There have appeared some positive changes in the past year or so, he went on. Our people have begun to perceive and accept supranational, universal values, such as freedom of expression, freedom to travel abroad, and other fundamental human rights and political liberties. But another foothold for the unity of Russian society is what can be called the traditional values of Russia. Patriotism. Pride in a nation capable of great achievements. And social solidarity, which has always prevailed over individualism. It will not happen soon if it ever happens at all, that Russia will become the second edition of, say, the United States or Britain, in which liberal values have deep historic traditions. The new Russian ideal will come about as an ally, alloy, or an organic unification of universal general values with traditional Russian values, which have stood the test of the times, including the tests test of the turbulent 20th century. Woven into Putin's manifesto was a distinctive conception of politics and leadership. He envisaged himself as a statesman 
in the Russian sense, meaning a builder and servant of the state in a country where the state has always been seen as superior to society and the individual. Putin considered the true leader to be above mere electoral politics, occupying a more permanent position as guardian of state interests. He looked back admiringly to the autocratic reformers of the late Tsarist era, men such as Nicholas II, Prime Minister Pyotr Sulipin, and he had no time for Gorbachev and Yeltsin, who had been submerged by democracy and had undermined the state. Above all, Putin believed that Russia had to resume its rightful historic place as a great power. Though no fan of communist ideology, in 2005 he went so far to declare that the collapse of the Soviet Union had been, and I quote, the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. He therefore considered the vicissitudes of the 1990s as an aberration that had to be overcome. Adapting one of Stolypin's famous phrases, he liked to say that the people did not need great upheavals. They needed a great Russia, with a strong state as the guarantor of order and the main driving force of any durable change. The Millennium Manifesto set out a blueprint for power that, to a remarkable degree, Putin has followed ever since. And if you're interested, you should Google and find the manifesto online. Putin the strongman who's reacting to the political chaos and economic slump of the 1990s, the era of his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Russia's lurch into privatization impoverished millions and financed an elite circle of super-rich oligarchs. The new dawn of democracy had turned into a dark nightmare of feuding political parties and acute political instability. That's why Putin was so emphatic about the need for commanding leadership, and that was his top priority during his first two terms, in 2000 to 2004, and again from 2004 to 2008. And after the nightmare of the 1990s, millions of Russians welcomed the restoration of order and the revival of the economy. In 2008, Putin did a job swap with his Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, during which he remained the real leader of Russia. But when he swapped jobs again with Medvedev in 2012, having engineered a six-year term, protests began to mount, especially from the generation that had come of age with Gorbachev's perestroika and glasnost. Putin won the election, the Kremlin machine ensured that, but with a strikingly diminished support especially in the cities, despite facing virtually no organized opposition. What really shocked him was the power of social media in forging networks that brought people onto the streets. This, remember, was at the time of the Arab Spring, when the Arab Spring was at its height, and pundits were agog about digital democracy. 
Putin subsequently imposed much tighter controls over the internet. He used sophisticated techniques of surveillance and justified this by blaming Hillary Clinton's State Department for funding the politicization of new social media and thereby fomenting opposition to his rule. And this animus towards Clinton helps to explain his attitude to the 2016 US presidential election. And Russia's state media, especially RT, is colored by this animosity too. You might like to take a moment just to look at those uh, images in a Russian airport. Mr. Plain lost an election, blame it on us, US. The longer you watch, the more upset Hillary Clinton becomes. Come closer and find out who we're planning to hack next. Or the CIA calls us a propaganda machine. Find out what we call them. Within Russia, Putin considered it vital to clamp down on discontent so he could pursue his agenda of re-establishing his country as a great power abroad. Yet Putin was also well aware that foreign policy successes could serve as a rallying point at home, rebuilding national pride. His greatest coup in 2014 was to regain the Crimea, after it had, as many Russians saw things, been given away gratuitously by Nikita Khrushchev in 1954. He followed this up by giving military support to pro-Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine, resulting in what's become a frozen war, which is still unresolved today. And although the West expressed horror and did not legally recognize Russia's annexations, on the whole, the West is largely impotent. The only Western leader who has tried to address this is Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor. Her approach to Putin is instructive, and we want to share with you for a few minutes on, on her. Actually, Merkel's relationship with Putin is also quite funny, which is another reason for bringing it into the talk at this point after the 6 p.m. watershed. So it doesn't have to be too serious. And in this vein, we shall tell you a few more or less shaggy dog stories. Merkel and Putin share a long history in power in the 20th century. But they actually go back to the 1980s. He helped run the East German dictatorship which, in which she grew up. Even if today they are equals as heads of government, at the back of her mind, he is still the Soviet KGB officer who spent five years in Dresden in the 1980s as a functionary of the occupying power. On the positive side, Putin's, Russian, Putin's German years mean that they can converse easily in both German and Russian, unlike any other pair of world leaders. And over the years, they've held dozens of meetings and talked for hundreds of hours on the phone. Merkel has always seen through Putin. There was a telling moment soon after 9-11 the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, then Putin addressed the German Bundestag, 
pledging solidarity with the Americans and presenting his vision of Russia's European identity and destiny. German and peace were enthralled by his delivery in fluent German and his apparently pro-Western message. Jumping at the end to their feet, they gave him a standing ovation. <coughs> and Merkel too stood up, but whispered wryly to her neighbor that Putin's German was so good, thanks to the Stasi. But even if there's no language barrier, there isn't much meeting of minds, as you can see from some of the uh, body language and the face talk there. This is a prickly relationship, both personally and politically. Nevertheless, there is mutual respect. <coughs> Neither of them underestimates the other. Merkel has always sought to push Russia and Putin towards a relationship rooted in rules, principles, and common interests, not one based on emotion or personal chemistry. Putin, in turn, has looked for a German partner who would make good economic and political deals and help his country at the international top table. He found such a partner in Merkel's predecessor, Gerhard Schröder, 1998-2005, with whom he built an especially close rapport. Schröder called Putin a good friend in whom he had, as he said in 2004, fundamental trust. He even praised the Russian president as a flawless Democrat. Oh. Politics and personal enrichment became enmeshed. Two weeks before the 2005 elections, which Schröder lost, he signed a pipeline deal with Putin for a $6 billion gas link between Germany and Russia under the Baltic Sea. And as soon as he left office, Schröder became chairman of the board of Gazprom, the Russian energy giant. The symbolic height of his Russian fleas was surely his lavish 70th birthday celebration with Putin, hosted by Gazprom in the Russian leader's hometown of St. Petersburg in April 2014, just weeks after the Ukraine crisis had exploded. Merkel could never engage in such a cozy man-to-man -man relationship with Putin. One, because she's a woman, and two, because she despises the whole business of alpha male bonding, sweating it out in the sauna like Helmut Kohl with Boris Yeltsin, or Nick, just imagine that, let alone playing endless rounds of golf with Trump. She keeps things professional. And in his own way, Putin has also kept things professional. The ex-KGB man introduced an element of psychological warfare into their relationship. Putin was aware through his intelligence channels that Merkel was nervous around dogs, having been bitten by one some years before. So in 2016, when she made her first official visit, just to wind her up. 
in 2007, one year later, he went one better. During their talks at his dacha in Sochi by the Black Sea, Putin had his large black Labrador Connie run into the room while he and Merkel sat across from each other. Here's the sequence. As the dog approached and sniffed her, Merkel froze, visibly frightened. Putin sat back, enjoying the moment's legs spread wide. <laughs> I'm sure it will behave itself, he said. Merkel dryly remarked in Russian, it doesn't eat journalists, does it? <laughs> she did not flinch, but looked very uncomfortable as the dog buried its head in her lap. <laughs> Later, in a press conference, Merkel got her own back with a memorable put-down of Putin. I understand why he does, has to do this, to prove he is a man. He's afraid of his own weakness. Russia has nothing no successful politics or economy. All they have is this. In fact, Putin seems to have had a thing about dogs. He tried a similar thing on President George W. Bush, the American president, the man who said when they first met in 2001 that he felt he had looked into Putin's soul. But he went off Putin a lot a year later when the Russian leader rubbished his dog. The president was devoted to his little Scotty called Barney. Ain't that sweet? Bush told the story like this. As you know, our dear dog Barney, who has a special place in my heart, Putin dissed him and said, you call that a dog? <laughs> a year later, on a trip to Russia, Vladimir says, would you like to meet my dog? Out bounds this huge hound, obviously much bigger than a Scottish Terrier. And Putin looks at me and says, bigger, stronger, and faster than Barney. <laughs> well, I just took it in. I didn't react, I just thought, wow. <laughs> Anybody who thinks my dog is bigger than your dog is an interesting character. <laughs> And this painting kind of reflects that. That's the painting. Sorry. Uh, he took up painting in a serious way once he became, after he left office as president. And here he is, a hollow, stone-faced Putin with narrow eyes. That was the soul that Bush now saw. Dog talk had shown the guy in his true colors. 
These were the kind of subtly sadistic efforts at intimidation that Putin loves to use. But Merkel bided her time and has proved his match. Let's fast forward to their recent meeting at Sochi in May 2017, her first visit to Russia for two years. Her position towards Russia had hardened because of Trump's election victory. The US president's evident inability to provide global leadership and his unwillingness to reaffirm Washington's unqualified commitment to NATO's collective defense has forced her to fill the vacuum. By accepting the Russian leader's invitation, Merkel risked seeming weak. But in the talks, she refused to soften her positions on key issues. Putin did the same, of course. And so the summit yielded nothing on Ukraine or Syria, indeed on anything at all. But their exchanges were illuminating, both about past history and present politics. Dear ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to press conference. I would like to emphasize that my talks with Ms. Merkel are always based on mutual interest, openness, and constructiveness. Over the decades since the Great Patriotic War, Russia and Germany have traveled a long and difficult path of convergence. Our common task is not to lose the experience we have accumulated and to develop bilateral cooperation for the benefit of our peoples in the name of peace and security in Europe. I also think that this is a very good opportunity to hold these talks. So I thank you for the invitation to come to Sochi. Two years ago, I was in Moscow on the occasion of the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II. I would like to pay tribute to the memory of those who died in that war. We must not forget about this. We must remain guided by this spirit. We must do everything in our power to bring peace to the world. We have had substantial, very substantial talks and will be able to continue them following this news conference. I think there are different opinions, but international politics means that we must seek and find dialogue. Now, regarding events in southeastern Ukraine. First, this is the result of a coup, an unconstitutional change of power in Kiev. Secondly, no one has separated these territories. They are being separated by the Ukrainian authorities themselves, which set up all kinds of blockades. No one took anything away from anyone. We have different views on the causes of this conflict. We do not share this point of view. 
we believe that the Ukrainian government came to power through democratic means. Uh, question. We have question from a uh, gentleman from Washington Post at the back. Sir? Uh, Madam Federal Chancellor, there are accusations that Russia influenced the election campaign in the US by manipulating, manipulating public opinion. Can you be sure that Russia will not interfere in the election campaign in Germany? I cannot say anything about the US presidential campaign, but I am not afraid. We know that cybercrime is an international threat. You can read about it anywhere. And of course, hybrid warfare plays a certain role in Russia's military doctrine. However, I am confident that we will hold the election campaign in Germany by ourselves with all the different positions in our political arena represented. We never interfere in the political affairs of other countries. And certainly, we do not want anyone to interfere in Russia's political affairs either. Unfortunately, for many years, we have seen attempts to influence Russia's domestic politics, both through so-called non-governmental organizations and also directly. You, sir, mentioned the US and allegations that have never been confirmed. It is just rumors used in the internal political struggle in the US. And you are making assumptions about uh, European countries, including a friendly country like Germany. I find that strange. Nevertheless, we should always make efforts at dialogue and maintain dialogue. When we talk to each other, we understand each other better. If we look at our centuries-old history, we should understand that we need to always maintain dialogue because every conversation, every discussion teaches us something. In terms of hard results, the summit got nowhere. But the atmospherics were revealing. She emphasized dialogue. He talked about mutual interests, especially the trading relationship between the two countries. But they took each other seriously, conceding little on the issues that really mattered to each of them. And the once quiet woman came over as strong, steely, and unusually vocal, despite her voice problems. Afterwards, she deliberately avoided fuzzy diplomatic comfort words about their meeting, such as good or constructive, and merely spoke of their intensive talks, from which she added, if nothing else, at least one learns something new. 
a damning verdict on the whole get-together. On TV footage, Putin was pictured staring at the ceiling or carefully scrutinizing the floor. For the first time in their decade-long series of meetings, the Russian presidents at times looked uncomfortable. This time, there had also not been any dogs. And certainly no tweets. Things had not improved two months later at the G20 summit in Hamburg when she was the host. Just wait, please. Just say you didn't get it. Okay, it's time to wrap up. On a personal level, Putin wants to dominate. We've seen this. And on an international level, Putin also wants to assert himself and his country. Both the Crimea and Ukraine illustrate his determination to regain for Russia lands that had been lost when the Soviet Union disintegrated. We have also seen Putin trying to extend Russia's influence further afield, notably in Syria and the Arctic North. Here you see the latest base um, in Franz Josef Land, very, very, very far north. He has been especially resourceful in developing new techniques of so-called hybrid warfare, building on his electronic system of domestic control. He has employed cyber power to penetrate and manipulate the democratic politics of Western states, especially America and Germany. Here Putin's playing a particularly subtle game. Unlike the Soviet Union, his country is now fully integrated into global capitalism and international communications. Yet he's using that penetration as a kind of, of Trojan horse to create instability from within and throw his rivals off balance. He operates as a kind of outsider-insider, hovering as ever between accepting universal values and asserting Russian values. In fact, Putin is challenging the whole post-Cold War order rooted in the American triumphalism of the 90s with its talk of a unipolar world. Russia, he insisted in March 2014 after the annexation of Crimea, is an independent, active participant in international affairs. Not playing second fiddle to America is his perpetual refrain from the Crimea to Syria from Ukraine to North Korea. As his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, declared at the UN General Assembly on the 21st of September 2017, international affairs are moving towards a polycentric world order. That is an objective trend and something that everyone will need to adapt to, including those 
who are used to loading and over others. A not surprising remark given the current shambles in the White House. That's why, with apologies to Lionel Shriver, we need to talk about Putin. He is not merely a poseur and a braggart like Trump. This is a man with a plan. He must be taken seriously. Thank you. Well, we have plenty of time for questions, uh, but <laughs> first, um, we would like people to just use the microphone, uh, the roving mic. So there's a gentleman here in the hat. Uh, well, I think it's generally believed that insofar as there is an influence on North Korea, and that's a big if, um, it tends to be it's Beijing, not Moscow. Um, and I don't think he has uh, a substantial role to play in this, though obviously as a, a nuclear power himself, and as a country that wants to show his place at the top table, he has an interest in it. But uh, I think China is where, if anything, there is, the shots are going to be called. Yeah, I think that uh, certainly what he has no interest in that any kind of nuclear exchange one way or another might be started because that means conventional warfare on the Korean Peninsula and um, it will be devastating for South Korea. So there's, there's no reason for America to do anything in a preemptive fashion because we know what the answer would be. It wouldn't be you know, necessarily lobbying anything at America. It would be straight massive conventional attack against South Korea and Putin has no interest in that kind of instability in his backyard. I think gentlemen here. Yeah, it's a similar thing. Um, <coughs> with China at the moment, the Chinese uh, uh, Prime Minister has just been given more power recently, um, and he's been in control of Hanford since 2000. Mm. He's gaining more and more power. So you have now three demigods in, their, in, in very powerful positions, um, and um, it's not just Putin. You know, there is, there is three of them that, are, that, mm. that, that have put themselves in a position of total, total leadership of, of mm. three powerful countries. Um, so, it's question? Yeah. Well, the, the, the point is, is that now there's three of them. Yeah. You know, it's not just Putin and, 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 and uh, Trump. No. Um, and it, it's how it's going to play out, how do you feel that those three are going to be able to communicate? Um, <laughs> communicate, yes. <laughs> Well, the problem is, first of all, that Trump has made clear that he doesn't really want to communicate. China has just asserted itself, uh, you know, just this week through a party conference and the, you know, the new paramount leader who has basically been established. So, in actual fact, um, you know, we need to wait for and hopefully get some kind of proper American leadership because the power vacuum that we really have is on the American side. 
I think Putin can sit there and watch where he's nothing that he isn't expecting because in any case he has also tried to toy with this, um, you know, China-Russia uh, alliance. Also, if you look at the high, high Arctic um, when it comes to shipping and, and security up there. Um, so the question is really, you know, um, will Trump at any point show anything um, you know, substantial on the American side. That's where we really have the shambles and the real uncertainty and somebody who actually has no desire to engage any cooperative dialogue. I mean, everything is sort of inward looking. Yeah. And that's quite different from China, say that's really outward looking. It's really trying to, you know, begin to dominate in the world as that third force. I think what we said at the end, and we could just fill it out a little more, is that uh, Putin in his own way and Xi, President Xi in, in, in China, are reacting to that situation after 1991 where there was this mood, particularly in the United States, of saying the Cold War is over, we won the Cold War, we are the only superpower. In other words, it's a unipolar, one-power world, not bipolar any longer. And that was a phase, and Russia <laughs> under Putin very deliberately is bouncing back. China had a different exit from communism, one in which the party retained control and gradually opened up the economy, uh, rather than the chaotic process that happened in, in, uh, in, in Russia under Gorbachev and particularly Yeltsin. But the point is that these are two powers that simply because of their size and uh, uh, population, if nothing else, as well as their resources, are bound to play a part in international politics. So the period of the 90s was a, a bit of an, an aberration, <coughs> it was an odd situation. We're now in a situation where these two powers, under two very strong and determined nationalist leaders, are challenging the United States, and they're doing it at a time when the Americans simply do not, not have effective leadership. So you are compounding the problem. And that's the situation we're, we're talking about in a more general way. But you're quite right that the Chinese dimension is a, another part of the story we're telling. Now, we had a gentleman in red there, and then behind him towards the, a little towards his right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also an economy that is heavily dependent on energy, <coughs> oil and natural gas. And the periods when, well, in the Soviet period, when the Soviets, Soviet Union was assertive in the 1970s, say, uh, and Putin in the 2000s, was when uh, the price of those commodities was high on the international market. Um, Part of the pressure on Gorbachev in the 1980s was that the price of oil fell dramatically in the mid-1980s. Same is true for Putin in the last couple of years. Um, this is a highly energy-dependent economy, uh, dependent on energy and energy exports. It hasn't diversified sufficiently. So yeah, the economy is his Achilles heel. Russia, I mean, if you, if you, you know, you visited Moscow, I mean, over the years, um, I mean, I'm not a Russianist, but I mean, I first went in 87, uh, so I've, I've sort of seen it on and off for 30 years. Totally different country from what one visited in 87, but, and in many ways, very Western in appearances and character, but the economy is his weak point. And so that is one of the things that is just a big question mark on, on where he's going and what he can do. 
compared even compared with the Chinese economy or the United States economy. If you think about the economy purely alone, I fully agree. I think you would just have to bear in mind also how much Russia proportionally of that economy spends on its military and what it spends its money on. And um, it's not just you know the, the build-up of, for example, intermediate-range nuclear weapons, which the Americans have not built up because you know both sides had this treaty, the INF Treaty of 1987. Russia has now broken it. Russia is also spending, as I explained before, um, a lot of money on um, reopening Cold War bases in the Arctic North and building new ones, um, having 40 icebreakers rather than five that the Americans have, of which only two function, and that's all understanding how important the shipping lanes in the North Sea Passage will be. And it's not just about the shipping which will make you money if that's your waters, but also if you look at climate change and the melting of the ice, there are more resources. And Russia has uh, you know, a long coast um, where it can benefit from that, and China has jumped at this, China and China knows. Gentlemen, just there, that's right. And then we'll, we'll try and look to the other side of the room just so that we're not biased. Uh, yes. I wondered if you could say something the back. about uh, Putin's attitude towards NATO, um, whether it's evolved and still evolving, or, or how he views NATO uh, as a Western influence. Well, it's been particularly sensitive yeah. in the Baltic states. You want to talk about well, that? Uh, first of all, um, a lot of Russia's foreign policy with regard to NATO is built on um, Putin's uses of history and um, his view that the whole survival of NATO in the context of German unification and the ending of the Cold War is based on a broken pledge that the West apparently, according to Putin, made that NATO would never enlarge these, especially never to the Baltic republics. But that's built on a myth. Um, we know from the documents on all sides that such pledges were never made. There's nothing in writing. Um, Russia, of course, strategically is out. We already talked about the 1990s. So his, his view, um, that is perpetuating also you know, throughout the media and in the population, is that Russia now is being <coughs> encircled by the West. But of course, if you look at the map, you could say Russia is a vast country, spanning from the West to the Pacific. So obviously, NATO is not encircling it all over the place. And actually, the three Baltic republics are quite um, a small section in Western Europe. And of course, Putin has his own little harbor of Kaliningrad where he has stationed short-range nuclear forces. So what we see here is very much an abuse of history to try and manipulate the debate with myths. Um, but he has done so very effectively. And then if you look at, for example, this business, this military exercise, the NATO had a military exercise with about 30,000 troops. Russia claimed it had one that was smaller than 12,000 troops in reality probably we think that they had about 100,000 troops. So that's natural that the Baltic republics uh, would have been quite nervous with that going on on their borders. Uh, let's look over there, see if there's somebody at the, towards the back. Or, uh, yeah, there's a gentleman in the middle there, with his hand up. Oh, sorry. Yes, okay, there and then we'll go to the middle. Thank <coughs> you. Since before Peter the Great, Well, I think that in that particular case, it's about 
demonstrating Russian power projection in a particularly ostentatious way. If you remember the, the, uh, the aircraft carrier that went right round the North Sea and, and, and down through the, uh, through the Mediterranean and so on. Uh, I think the areas that, that are more historically significant are the, uh, the Black Sea and the uh, exit into the Mediterranean on the one hand and the Baltic uh, on the other. But what Christina was mentioning is that well, there's a really interesting shift in the geopolitics, which is because of the of climate change and the uh, the um, ice flows melting. There's actually routes opening up through the Arctic North, which are now uh, I mean you know more about this than I do, but I mean are very much uh, up for grabs amongst the powers will be much more contested. I mean, I think if you look at Syria, you have to think about it in this context of what is Putin trying to do. He's trying to get foreign policy successes through power projection. And, you know, to put that one aircraft carrier that the Russians have, which actually stems from the Cold War period, which barely yeah, made it that pretty way. Pretty obsolescent, yeah. Yeah, the Kutsanov. So that was a typical way of just trying to say, you know, we have this, it will go past, you know, Dover, we all have to see it. But in terms of real effectiveness, it wouldn't be a very effective aircraft carrier as such. But it's about putting markers out, you know? This is something that you have to look into. You know, Russia is not just some power, some sort of regional power. And Putin was very upset, actually, when Obama said Russia is just a regional power. Putin has been focused on making Russia a great power, a world power again. And that's what we talked about before, these three big world powers. And I spoke just to <coughs> am amplify it. We, we could say even more about it than we did, but the 90s are a sort of forgotten period in Russian history as far as we're concerned. After the fall of the Soviet Union, people sort of say, ah, oh, Cold War's ended, everything's happy, Russia's kind of going our way. Nobody noticed what happened to living standards for ordinary Russians in the 1990s. It was appalling. This was a society which was used to fixed wages, fixed rents, uh, fixed prices, even if they're at a fairly low level. And suddenly, everything was in, well, the, the, the uh, real wages and real uh, uh, income were in, uh, in free fall. Prices gone through the roof. And ma many Russians were reduced to, to penury. And that was hugely humiliating for a country that has a, a proud sense of its history, is absolutely sure that it was the decisive factor in the defeat of Nazi Germany. Uh, and hated that humiliation. And what Putin is doing is really has been trying to do is rebuild that sense of pride, that sense of esteem in a country which had really gone uh, you know, to, to, the, to the dogs in the 1990s. I would just like to add to that. You know, Russia also had to be confronted with the withdrawal of the Red Army from Central Europe for, you know, all those military who had to return into a rump state or to end up in other kind of new states, that was deeply humiliating. Mm. And they felt the whole purpose was gone. The gentleman in the middle there, we, he had his hand up. That's it, yeah. It's just been announced this afternoon <coughs> on RT. Um, no giggles, that's good. Um, that um, China wants to set up a petro-yuan. This is a very significant moment in geopolitical history. Uh, 
how should we interpret this as a as a signifier of kind of wider global a pe geopolitics? Petro-Europe, that is to say, uh, the Chinese government wants to divest itself of the petro-dog. It wants to be economically autonomous mm -hmm. on the global market. So how should we interpret this as, as a signifier? Is this the beginning of the end of the US empire? Are we seeing a kind of, if you will, latter-day rerun of the fall of Rome? Or do you think there will be a, a, an aggressive response by the US government to this? Well, at such short notice, I would say it's too early to judge, but uh, I would say that, wouldn't I? I mean, what, what is your reaction to that? Because I haven't caught that news today. Um, a signifier. I think what we're actually seeing is, is effectively a, a decline of the US empire. Uh, they look, I mean, it's effectively a historical rerun of what happened to the Roman Empire, in that uh, they're repeating the same mistakes. They've gotten out, are more or less out of touch, inbred political class, Trump notwithstanding. Uh, and, you know, there's definitely military and budgetary over, uh, overstretch. Uh, and uh, you know, they're basically spending, they're not spending money at home. Their infrastructure is crumbling, that's, that's a given. Uh, they're, they're effectively hollowing out their own economy. Uh, and it's causing, a, and, the reason, and it's part of the reason why Trump got the top job because people were fed up of money not being spent at home. Well, I mean, I'll respond to Christine probably as well, but I mean, I would say just on that, that, you know, the, what we've talked about is a sense that, yes, power is being more distributed now than it was in that immediate end of the Cold War moment. But it's, you know, if we're writing the obituaries of the United States, it's worth thinking it's 30 years pretty much to the day that Paul Kennedy, the Yale historian, published The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, uh, which became a global bestseller. Uh, it covered many centuries of history, but what everybody read was the last chapter, which was about the decline of the United States. Uh, he said, you know, Rome fell, Babylon fell, Scarsdale's time will come. Um, and he was predicting a Pacific century, though, of course, a Pacific century at, at the center of which was Japan. We don't normally talk about Japan very much now. Uh, so, you know, that's an example of, uh, and he did that just before the end of the Cold War and the unipolar moment. I mean, in, uh, certainly there's, I think there is obviously a long-term redistribution of power around the world. On the other hand, the United States has huge uh, benefits in terms of the most advanced economy, the most technologically proficient. In terms, you know, the aircraft carriers that Christina was mentioning, the United States can move force in a really big way still. Um, so I wouldn't write off American power just like that, but although I won't be around to see the truth of this prediction, you know, probably by the middle of the century, we will see something rather different. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen up at the back, and then we'll come back to the, the front. That's also the lady. Yes. Oh, sorry, where? After him. All oh, right, sorry. Yep. Can you give a view of how will Putinism end? When will it end? What comes next? Who comes next? Right. And um, before that happens, has he not already established himself as a kind of role model within the European Union? If you look at the Visegrad nations mm. now, um, especially in view of what's happened, it's very weak in the Czech Republic. 
also you got Mr. Orban in Hungary, not on fancy himself as a, as a European Union Putin type. Um, final thing, when's the next round up as well? Where's that going to be? Um, any, anybody on anything? Retaking Narva, for example, any, any, any bets on that? Right, so I'm just trying to think through the half a dozen questions you've asked us. Um, which one would you like to answer or go for? Or? I would say that um, it's quite clear that <clears throat> Putin is putting out a couple of candidates. For example, Ms. Sobchak um, asked to, um, to put the uh, opposition, to half the opposition. He's very likely to run again. He's very likely to manage to win again. He will be there for six more years. What comes after that is anybody's bet. And as historians, we are not futurologists. Mm -hmm. So I think we should first look at the next six years. What I dare to say is that I'm fairly confident that he will be in charge next year. <coughs> yeah, maybe if he can show up himself in a way that he's happy to retire without having to worry for his life or for his money or for his duchess or whatever. Um, I could also imagine that after 25 years, he has somebody else in mind. Hmm. I mean, look at you know, the whole Yeltsin, Putin, Putin, Medvedev. I don't think that necessarily after 25 years he will hang around. But he will do whatever he does, if there's an exit, it will be an exit strategy that will protect yeah. his backside. He has to do that. Um, I mean, we have discussed this quite a lot. My sense of it is that is that what you're seeing is um, the unfinished business of the Gorbachev era. Gorbachev had no idea what he was doing. He opened up a, a revolution that is still, in a sense, working itself out. But for me, the, um, the social media stuff, the, the, the greater use of the internet now, I mean, 70% of over 16s in Russia are on the internet in some way or another. Um, uh, that's in a society which Gorbachev inherited where everything was controlled. First time I went to Moscow, uh, one of the minders we had, had never, uh, who'd grown up in Moscow, was a part of the elite. She had never at, at 30 seen a map <coughs> of Moscow. That was how much mo information was controlled. Now, we're, they're in an internet age. They communicate even if uh, politically sensitive people are controlled. So my sense of it is you have a struggle here in a sense between the glasnost generation coming of age in, uh, in, in the, the Facebook era and Putin's determination to behave like a traditional Russian strongman. And that's going to be a struggle which will go on. It won't be resolved in 2018. It will carry on. But that, that, those are the two poles, if you like. It's, if you like, it's... It's the statesman in the sense that we were talking about earlier versus society, a very different society. And that's the drama that's going to be played out, I think, over a period of time. But to go to your general point, um, yes, I mean, what he has managed to do as a strong man has encouraged many people in uh, East Central Eastern Europe, where the transition from communism has been hugely problematic, uh, has not been actually properly accomplished, where democracy in the sense of a democratic society and values does not have deep roots. Um, so, you know, his, he will have plenty of, of, of emulators. And what we're talking about more generally, particularly at a time when both this country and the United States are basically 
in political turmoil is the challenge to democracy, democracy as we believe it. And that's, that's the big question, I think, and that's the one which is going to play out. Now, you said there was a, a lady... I think we have oh, time for two questions. Lady, so there's a lady, there's a lady somewhere. And there was yeah. a gentleman. Oh, right, sorry, yeah. So maybe we collect the two and then we... Yeah, OK, that's fine, yes, good. Oh, yeah. Well, I think what we, again, we went through rather fast, but what we were trying to say is that the first two terms, as 2000 to 2008, when there is a big financial crisis in Russia in 2008, was actually a time of stabilization where he, he reached a deal with the oligarchs, which left them, well, some of them were taken out, uh, the ones that were problematic. The rest were left in power, and that relationship he has is an extremely cozy one, but it's, it's absolutely central. Around that, he was been able to um, uh, raise, I mean, he has stabilized the economic problems. He has uh, raised living standards, partly, again, through the fortuitous benefits of, of rising the oil prices and energy prices and so on. Um, uh, what we mostly see in the Western media is what life is like in Russian cities, if we see anything at all. Rural Russia, I think there is still a huge amount of poverty and backwardness and so on. But I think for most, I mean, if you think of, of, of crises over the centuries that have been hugely debilitating, it's when ordinary people do not, you know, can't actually work out how they're going to pay for the food each week. I mean, if you think of of Germany in the early 20s with the, you know, the, the, the currency going mad, and then in the early 30s, the depression, you know, that's what is the, is the pressure on the political system. Putin has stabilized that. People know where they are, and certainly Russian cities are, are much more prosperous now than they were uh, in the 90s or whatever. So that is a, that's part of, I think, his appeal to ordinary Russians. Yes, the psychology is of, of great power is not so attractive necessarily, but um, uh, it's not so significant. Sorry, we wanted to take, yeah, uh, we should take the other question. The I'm sorry. Yeah. And then we are punctual. Yeah. So I know we talked a little bit about uh, you know, Putin's uh, cyber warfare, uh, hybrid warfare, but I'd really like that you brought up Merkel, especially because if you look at Gazprom, Winters, so how do you view Putin's ability to economically 
I think in the German story that is, it's different because um, you know Germany offers something to Russia. You know, you know originally it was pipelines, um, steel pipes, uh, and in return they get gas and oil. And of course, the whole point about that pipeline deal was that it bypassed all the harbors in the Baltic Sea, and so they wouldn't make any money out of that shipping. Germany gets the direct pipeline, and so that made Schröder, you know, so I'm the social democrat. I'm very happy that he got that for Germany. That was Nord Stream 1. In fact, you know, Nord Stream 2 is coming on stream. So um, that is it, how it looks from the German perspective. And if you think about the environmental debate, then, um, you know, Merkel has driven very much the Paris Agreement. Um, she's very much pro-environment. She has done something that the Greens wanted, namely get rid of the nuclear power. That, in the public opinion in Germany, was more important than the question whether we can rely more or less enough on the oil and gas um, from Russia. And of course, if you think about where this may be coming in from the future, then of course, if there will be harbors in Norway or Iceland or those kind of places, then they're actually closer to Western Europe. And um, so that's Western Europe can orient itself either then towards Russia or towards Canada and the US if they get their act together on the Northwest Passage. I don't think that in the German view of what is environmentally friendly or not, the most important thing was to get rid of nu nuclear civilian power because for the Germans in the German psyche that connects up with nuclear weapons and there was always that fear that short and intermediate range nuclear weapons cause nuclear war in the heart of Europe. And that fear is bigger than what you do with oil and gas because as long as you have dialogue, which Merkel keeps emphasizing, and Russia needs German investment. Ru Germany is the second biggest investor uh, in Russia. So, you know, Russia can't afford to lose Germany either. So for Germany, it's pretty secure, I would say. And on that happy note, we perhaps should end. So thank you very much for coming.